Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I am talking with Eric Tanzi, co-creator and host of Failure to Stop, the number one YouTube channel and podcast where law enforcement meets society and culture. Eric was a law enforcement officer for nearly eight years, from 2012 to 2019 with the Raleigh Police Department. Before that, he served our country in special ops as a U.S. Army paratrooper from 2003 to 2010. Eric also is a sommelier and owns a distillery in Clayton, North Carolina, called Instill Distilling Company. He's written a book about his time as a police officer called Pig Latin, a serious but funny true story. It's slated to be published later this year, and I can highly recommend it. Eric, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's exciting. <laughs> Good. I uh, thank you for sending me the manuscript yesterday. I have to tell you, it is a true page turner. <laughs> it really is. Hopefully enjoying it. It's really good. Really yeah. good. It was a fun book to write, man. Like it started out as just a, a book that I wanted to put stories on paper for my kids. Cause obviously I'm not a writer, obviously. If you um, wrote that, you are a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and it started out as like wanting to, to, to be stories on paper for my kids. And then for when they're older, you know, in case something happened or something, you know, and, and yeah, it what, what ended up becoming of the book was just like, after, I don't know, maybe like five months of writing it, this was like four years ago, my wife reads like three books a week. Like she read 300 and something pages yesterday mm. to finish a book. She's she's crazy brilliant. And she wanted to read what I was writing and I didn't want her to read it because I didn't want to be judged. And uh, she finally took it, went back to the room and then she came back out and she was crying. And I was like, what are you crying about? She was like, you wrote this? And I said, yeah. And she was like, that's the funniest. Like, she's like, I don't ever laugh at books. Like this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And she was like, is this a thing? Can we make this a book? Can we do this? And so, you know, four years in the making and now it's a book. <laughs> well, it's, it's great. It's, it's in your voice. It's, it's funny, but it's moving. Um, and I know it's not available yet for folks. I, I do want to talk about a few things that are in it, but uh, sure. I'm going to make sure they buy the book so they can hear, to hear all the stories. Oh, it's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. What? Um, let's start with, I know you talk about getting out of the Army and you say in the book, it's been a while since I'd felt this cool when you started in yeah. law enforcement. Yeah. Um, what made you choose law enforcement and what made you say that? Uh, well, what made me choose law enforcement, I wasn't smart enough to do anything else. Um, I tried to be a, a wine salesman when I got out of the military, but I was a shitty salesman. So that didn't last very long. And the only other thing I could do at that time, being a C student with no college education, was be a cop. And I didn't even think I was going to be a cop without without a college education. And, and unbelievably, like I did with the city of Raleigh, I was I was living in Tampa, Florida at the time and just applied oh, right. to Raleigh on a whim and had no idea. I didn't know any of the history. Um, which is a really rich history for the Raleigh Police Department. It's very difficult. It's like one of the more difficult agencies to get into. Um, they're accredited agency. Their SWAT team is one of the best in the United States. And so I, I, I was just really fortunate. But being in the military, like I woke up every day and was like, man, I can't believe I get to be this cool. Jumping out of airplanes, uh, riding on four wheelers and and hunting bad guys in Afghanistan. I, I mean, I went to 
my first rotation, my first tour of Afghanistan, I was actually 19 years old. Oh and, um, and I was with a Cav scout unit. So we were, we were scouts and uh, living in tents, living in trucks and, and gallivanting across the entire countryside of Afghanistan, reconning and, and looking for bad guys and reporting on arms deals and, and meeting with moolahs and, and talking about, you know, poisoning of wells and just all these crazy things I got to see at 19 years old, man. It was just like every day I woke up in that country, I was like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. Like this is, and some days it was very scary, but yeah. you know, I, you know, at the time I didn't have kids. And so that journey for me was just like, dude, I get to sit behind this massive gun and essentially get to choose who lives and who dies at wow. 19 years old, you know, in front of me. And then, and then, um, my military career in special operations was, was incredible. I got to do a lot of really great things. I went to a lot of amazing schools. And then when I got out, because I thought I was going to pursue a wine career, um, I got out and realized really quickly, like, wow, my life is super empty. What, you know, living with that adrenaline of tomorrow, mm. I'm jumping out of an airplane. I wonder what kind of airplane I'm jumping out of tomorrow. Are we going to jump out at night? Are we going to jump out during the day? Like, is this op order going to be approved? Are we, are we going to do this training operation in California? Or are we going to do it in, uh, are we going to do it in Nevada? Like what, like, all that goes away when you get out of the military and mm -hmm. there's big emptiness there. So being in a cop car and just being like, what's our next call going to be? Where are we going next? You know, are, are we going to be punching somebody in the face or, or are we going to be saving somebody from a burning building? Like what's going to happen next? So that's kind of what I meant by I never, it'd been a while since I felt that. And was it what you thought it was going to be? No. <laughs> no, it's much, much more intense. It's much more real mm. in the military. There's a sense of not re like it's real, but like, because you're experiencing it with so many guys that are experiencing it with you, you can kind of rely on their fear. You can rely on their courage as well. Meaning that like when you're in a sketchy situation in the military, you can look to your left and you can look to your right. And sometimes that guy to your left might be scared and shit in his pants. And then you can look over to the right and you can see one dude that's just stone cold in the moment. Then you might look past him and you got another guy that's hyper-focused on a radio. But everybody's going through that moment differently, but you're all going through it together. And then you can kind of decide on which guy you want to be. Um, when you're a cop, <laughs> there's nobody to your left and right. It's just you. And how are you going to react? Like, if a dude runs from you in the middle of the night and it's raining, you can just not chase him. Or you can choose to barely chase him and so you don't catch him because you might be afraid of him he might be six foot two and look like a track star and what are you going to do when you catch him because you're going to have to fight him yeah. there's a great opportunity that you might lose so uh being a cop was a lot different and you have to go through all that emotion by yourself and you're dealing with the emotions of civilians and that's crazy so yeah well a lot of weird energy you've got to take on all the time too it's every call every call is different right like and and everybody deals with stress in a different way and you have to process that in the moment and it's just it's wild man it's a wild ride being a cop that's why i wrote the book because i think i don't think anybody's ever been like really honest about that part the civilian part or the feeling alone uh all of it and uh, like that's what the whole book yeah. is about like nobody honestly writes what they think in the moment and i try to do that in the book like nobody goes through what their thought presses are and those are honest thoughts like what, what you read in the book those are honest thoughts those are like those are me saying like oh, you know i don't know the answer or i don't know how to fix this problem but i want to um when you're seeing somebody die 
and and you're just overwhelmingly sad for them and for their situation you know all those thoughts all those emotions that's real time stuff that that cops have to deal with and, and cops rarely touch on that they'll touch on the cases that they solved they'll touch on the uses of force that they use but they'll never really touch on like what it was actually like in that moment and that's the picture i wanted to paint after we decided to make the book a thing that other people were going to read i was like if it's going to be a story i want to tell the totality of the story i want to tell like what it's really like because then you can see why cops maybe make certain mistakes and, and i don't hold back in the book i mean i make a lot of mistakes and i talk about all those mistakes in the book i don't try to justify them but i think once you read it and you realize everything that goes into it that maybe making those decisions isn't as easy as people think they are um, well one of the very poignant parts was the man who died in your arms you talk about the mexican guy yeah jesus that was a tough night, man. I mean, that, that's still the one that's, that's still the one that, that I don't really talk about a lot. Um, mm. I'm at a matter of fact, putting it in the book, my wife read that one and she was like, wow, that's the first time I've heard that story. And she's, she's heard all my other stories a thousand times, she, but she's like, I've never heard that story. And I said, yeah, cause that's the one I don't, I mean, that was the one that'll probably stick with me for the rest of my life. I mean, I can still mm. smell that scene. I could smell oh, that girl's perfume. She's crying, you know, it's a very sad moment. And then that boy didn't deserve to die at all. Do you want to set it up for the audience? Sure. I could do that. So it was a, it was a call and, um, and I was the first one to a call it was a, it was a shooting that had happened at a very uh, low income, mostly Hispanic, if not a hundred percent Hispanic, uh, apartment complex. And, um, most everybody in there were illegal aliens. And, but we never, we never, they never called the police because they knew they were all illegal aliens. And so they didn't want the police ever at the, that apartment complex. It's a very small apartment complex and they've always kept very quiet. And it's a very hardworking group of individuals that work there. And so I never, we never really had any problems there. And there was a shooting that went out at that apartment complex, which was odd in itself. And so when I got there, nobody, of course, speaks English, but there was a gentleman who, who was apparently dead. And then there was another gentleman who had a bullet hole in his stomach. I think he had like more than one in his stomach, but, uh, but he had been shot a couple of times. And then there was a third gentleman who had been pistol whipped in the forehead. And, and so he was covered in blood. So I've got a dead guy a dying guy and a guy covered in blood and nobody speaks English and the guy's yelling at me. And so I'm trying to tell him, the guy that's yelling at me to like, show me his hands. I'm the first one on scene. Um, there's another officer uh, that, that's going to arrive pretty, pretty quickly after me um, in that same time frame. But you know, I don't know who the killer is. I don't know if this guy got in a fight with these other two dudes and then he was losing the fight. And so he shot them both. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I get him to sit down and, and, and I notice that there's this young man that's, that's dying. And so I, I go over to him and, and he's looking at me and, and his eyes, man, he just spoke to me through his eyes. I mean, he was just trying to figure out like what the, why, why am I laying here? Uh, obviously struggling to breathe and he would arch his back and do all these things, all the things that a dying person does. And I couldn't do anything. I mean, I put my hand over his stomach and, and try to ask him who killed him. And, and all he could do is arch his back and, and very painful looking, agonizing ways to try to reach for breaths. And it was just very emotional. And my adrenaline was up so high and, and I'm trying to, to save him and trying to tell him to stay with me. I can hear the ambulance coming and I felt like a warm, a warm sub, like I felt my hand get very warm very quickly. And I looked down and my, my hand had sunk into his stomach because I was putting so much pressure on the bullet wound to try to get it to stop bleeding. But I was also yelling at him to stay alive and also trying to yell at him to tell, to ask who shot you. And, you know, I had seen a lot of people die, lots of people die. 
but I had never seen a fear of dying like I saw in this guy. This kid didn't want to die. And this kid wanted to say something. He wanted to talk so bad. Come to find out later, he'd just gotten married that weekend. And, and he was very young and his wife was very young. And it was just the whole thing was bad, man. And he had died. And what had happened to him was a couple of youths in the, in the neighboring uh, apartment complex had crossed the street over into the Mexican Mexican territory there. And these guys were working nights. They were working on a, on a drywall drop. So they were covered in drywall. And they were sitting on the back of the tailgate early in the morning after just getting off of working. But because they're illegal aliens, they get paid in cash. And so these gang members, they know these young gang kids are trying to come up and the gangs, they know this is a quick way to get money. More money they get, the higher, the higher they climb that gang ladder. And so they went to rob these, these three gentlemen of their cash. And I think they got a total of like 200 bucks off of each guy. Uh, I think they shot the first guy in the head. The second guy tried to run and they shot him. That's why he, he was laying on the ground dying. And then the third guy just coughed up the money and that's why they only pistoled him. And we got to the hospital and I uh, was the only one there. And so, you know, we had to tell the parents and the family that, that the kid had died. It was just the whole thing, man. Just so terrible. Such a terrible thing. Just married. Within three days. Yeah. Crazy. It's a crazy story. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you're going to see as a cop. Like, that's not, uh, that's not a new story. You know, for like your other first responder listeners, like every cop deals with something similar to that. But that was the first, that was the only one where I, the, the, the dying person that I really empathized with. Like I really felt it in my soul that this guy, it wasn't his time to go and he got taken very quickly. And, and I could tell that he was in love, man. Like I didn't know he had just gotten married until later on that night. But looking back on it, I know that that, that kid didn't want to leave his, that's what he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to leave his new wife. Yeah. Crazy. And you write about being with her at the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. She, she came to the hospital and, and she punched me a lot. Um, <laughs> she cried down at my feet for a lot, hours, hours and hours, probably four hours, maybe, maybe longer. I mean, it felt like longer than four hours, but you know, this probably went down around, I can't remember now, but probably like one or two in the morning. And I stayed till 6am. You know, we, we had to go to the morgue together and it just kept repeating, right? Like, going down to the mortgage, like it all started over. Even the priest was like, I can't handle this. The mom and the, the wife, it was just so sad. And so like, I was end up leave, left in this room, like by myself, like at one point, and I've got this mom and this wife just crying all over me. Not, I can't understand a word they're saying. They're thankful for a minute. Then they're hateful for a second. Then they're remorseful for a second. And it just kept repeating over and over again. I had nothing to say and I couldn't look her in the eyes. And, you know, I've done a lot of awesome things in my life man. and I, and I'm, you know, I've dealt with, with death, people with uh, missing arms and legs and, and, and usually just roll right with it, you know? And, but in this case, and I didn't even have the balls to look her in the eye. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even look the wife and like, and I didn't do anything wrong. I couldn't save this kid. There's no, nobody that could, uh, but I couldn't bear myself to like look at her in, in her eyes. And she wanted me to, there were times where she was just adamant that I should look at her. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't. And I wanted to throw up. Like, I, you know, there was this vomit in my throat. There's times in those four hours where I'm like, I'm bailing. I'm out. Dude, fuck this. Like, I'm out the door. I'm just going to go. Like, who's going to stop me? And then, you know, you're gearing yourself up, right? You're talking to yourself like, all right, this is it. Like, as soon as she lets go of my ankles, I'm walking out, dude. Like, they can't stop me. And then she lets go of their ankles and you're like, no, I have to stay. Like, this is my job. So that was a shitty yeah. night, man. It was a... Probably out of all of the ones, that was the, that was probably the shittiest, probably yeah. the shittiest night of being a cop. Yeah. Sure. That's, you know, that kind of thing really sticks with you. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I guess when you see people die, sometimes it's criminal on criminal. I don't know if that mostly feels different. You know, I mean, death is death. Yeah, it does. It definitely, it feels, it definitely feels different. Crime, criminals on criminals, like it's, sometimes you even crack that joke to them yeah. on their way out. You're like, well, probably, <laughs> probably shouldn't have done that tonight, huh? You know, and that sucks. That's mean. Like as a civilian looking at it now, when you're in that moment, that's yeah. a way that you deal with stress. You talk about this incident that was so emotional for you and then you may in another instance have to have gone to another call you guys go call to call to call sure. to call yeah. and you show that the civilian doesn't know what you've just been through right they don't they never know they they, they never know and that's that's crazy because sometimes you want to scream at the civilian and mm. you want to just like let loose you know you want to just be like do you know what i just did like you think i really give a fuck about you going 16 or 35 i absolutely don't but the fact that like i just literally this morning cleared a fatality accident where I had to, you know, deal with this dead mother uh, who just dropped her kids off of school in the morning and some a-hole hit her going the wrong direction because he didn't get enough sleep the night before, which is a true story that really happened. She happened to be a nurse. You know, all of a sudden, three o'clock in the afternoon comes around and you see somebody going 16 to 35. Yeah, you're kind of pissed. You're kind of mm. like, damn, dude, why are you going 16 to 35? I don't go 16 to 35. As a cop, you kind of learn too that 99% of the people that are doing stupid shit probably are doing it for a reason. So I also wanted to, some of the, you talk about is pursuits. Talk about adrenaline. So you talk about the one where you hydroplaned, you you were pursuing a man who had committed murder and rape. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really, it's a, you could look the news story up. It's a very crazy news story. It's out of oh, really? Yeah, the, the, the case you're referring to, the, the, the car chase was uh, a guy named uh, Kendrick Chianti Gregory. And that morning he, I was on my way to get coffee uh, at Starbucks, coffee, my donut, man. And, um, <laughs> and I just happened to be on the highway and a tone went out that there was a murder that just had happened at, at a hotel. And the suspect was, was leaving the hotel and, and heading out on, on the highway that I just happened to be on 440, the belt line. And so I had radioed into dispatch that, Hey, I'm, I'm on that road. And I actually see a car way up in the distance. There's, it's the only car. The only thing, the only thing that's on the road is a semi truck. So I'm pretty sure that that's him. And they're like, yeah, that's going to be him. And I can see other cops heading over the overpass, heading towards the murder. And I just talked on the radio and I said, do you want me to divert and go to the homicide scene? Or do you want me to chase this car in front of me? And they were like, chase the car in front of you. We've got plenty of cops going to, to the homicide scene. So I turn on my blue lights and sure enough, the car takes off, you know, so it's definitely this guy. And I started to pursue him and um, I was, I passed the semi truck and then I went over a concrete block. And it, and, and it was a new stretch of road, brand new stretch of road, just had opened like in the, in the last two weeks. And so the concrete was real smooth and it had rained prior that night. And so the way the, the roads were a little bit glassy from, from the water and, uh, my car, my old crown Vic, um, the suspension flexed coming off of the new concrete to the old concrete and that allowed the back end to come loose. And I spun out and into the, into the concrete barricade and, uh, airbags all went off and, and, and totaled my car you know, wrecking it at about 80 miles an hour. I had a little bit of blood coming down from my ear because my head had hit the uh, shotgun rack. But I, I didn't want to let anybody know that I had been in a wreck because everybody is going to this scene and there was other people coming to help me chase this guy. So if I say that I've just wrecked my car, all of a sudden that's probably going to throw everybody off. Plus I'm embarrassed that I just wrecked my car. 
And, and dispatch kind of rats me out on that. She's like, Oh, see, you're hung up on the side of the road there. Like, oh, <laughs> fuck you. Um, and so she's like, I got an ambulance on the way, you know, blah, blah, blah. But so the guy goes to two exits up, gets out of his car, walks into a pawn shop, shoots the pawn shop owner in the face, takes a set of keys, gets in the car, steals the car, um, heads down to a neighborhood thinking that everybody's in school, breaks into a house only to find that there's a 15 year old girl still there in the house. He holds her hostage for a little while while the cops are combing the backyards of all these houses, rapes her while he's in the house. And then later on that afternoon, when the cops kind of die down, he jumps in a car and flees to New York. And he's caught later that evening in New York. And he fights with police and he had a stolen fire. He had the gun that he used. Uh, but the bigger part of that story is, you know, I forever get to live with, man, had I not let the adrenaline take over, had I drove a little bit better, a chick wouldn't have got raped and a dude wouldn't have got murdered. And, and that wasn't something I ever like talked about. But it's like something that I definitely lived with for for a hot minute. And it was jokes made on the, you know, my partner, she read, I think her first thing was like, damn, dude, you were behind that guy. And then you wrecked. And then he murdered somebody. And then he raped somebody. Bet you feel like shit. And I was like, fuck, I really do feel like shit. Like, that sucks. That's uh, a lot to put on yourself. <laughs> I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you have to just convince yourself that there's you did the best you could at that time. Now, my other chase is that after that, did I drive a hell of a lot better? Yeah. Did I think about that? Yeah. But you know, I, I think a lot of cops have those experiences. Most cops do, but they're never going to talk about it. Well, there's a lot of, uh, currently, I don't know if it's nationally or just locally, a lot of debate about pursuits. They're trying to limit in some cities yeah. what you can pursue for. What's your, what do you think about them? I think it's a, it's a highly debatable topic for sure. I, I I've never really been a big fan of black and white, right? Like I've never been a fan of, we are not going to chase. And then that's it. I, I think you have to leave things up for interpretation. I think there's a time to chase. There's a time not to chase. I think if you have the time to look up somebody's criminal history, if you have time to look at the, you know, if, if it's the right time of night and that there isn't a lot mm -hmm. of traffic on the road and this is a violent enough person, I think that if you're going to appoint somebody to be the captain of a police department and a captain in a police department is like a general in the military. So if you, if somebody's made it that far, then you got to trust that they one know their officers well enough and that they trust their officers enough to say whether they should chase or not. And they should live with the consequences. But this whole jargon of absolutely no chasing, ah, what precedent does that set? Now, if I just run from the cops, I can get away. Right. Um, and we've empowered criminals in this country in the last 10 years. So much so that like, it's cool. It's, it's fine to shoot a cop. Now everybody wants to fight the cops. Like, Running from the cops is like, cool. Like kids brag about running from the cops. Yeah. I don't agree with just chasing for everything. Uh, and, and I think that there should be like a lot of rules, but, but there should be a lot of training too, right? Like, hence why we can't get rid of defunding the police or, or why we, we should stop defunding the police. Like, well, how about we just, we just train them to chase better, give them more opportunities to drive fast so that they don't have adrenaline dumps and wreck their car in the middle of the highway while, while chasing a murder suspect. Well, one of the things I've heard you talk about, I don't know if it was in the book or on failure to stop, but how civilians are always saying police should not shoot someone who's fleeing. And, you know, I know there are times when you can shoot someone who is fleeing, but the thing that you mentioned is that several suspects have turned around and shot at your friends. And so I think you said one was shot in the head. Yeah. Yeah. Shot him dead. Did he? Yeah, this is a guy on my squad and his training officer 
uh, he and his training officer were, were, were chasing a subject and the guy turned around and shot the training officer in the head and then shot my buddy in the thigh. My buddy returned fire and, and killed the suspect. But, you know, a snake's going to run until it can't run anymore, right? If a snake, if you're, if a snake is running from you and you're chasing a snake, it's absurd to think that at some point that snake's not going to turn around and bite you. So like the thought that somebody's fleeing can't turn around and hit you, like get you. My first thing is if somebody's fleeing from me, especially if it's for a felony, they're going to flee at all costs because they, they, they want to get away. You think it's like a game of tag? Like when, when somebody runs from you, or you think when you catch them, they're just like, ha, 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 you got me. No, it's always a fight ensues afterwards. <laughs> you know, if you're running and you're tucking your hands in your waistband, you can kill me. I mean, it's like I said, like a snake can turn around and bite you at any second. These criminals fleeing from you can bite you in a second, you know? Right. This was a line of duty death for you then? This was a squad mate? Your, the FTO that was? No, the FTO was actually from the neighboring department. Now, a couple of my partners did get shot while I was, was at, at work. My, one of my buddies got shot on his very last day. Filling in for a shift that, and we were all at the range. Um, he's on our sister squad, C squad. So we'd be relieving them. And uh, they were so short because guys were at the range and were in training that on his last day, he was leaving to go be, become a teacher, a school teacher, I believe. And, and, and he said, well, hey, I'm going to take some calls until lunchtime. That gives everybody some time to get back from the range so we're not understaffed. Um, and then I'll go and turn in my gear a- after lunch. And uh, it was like 1045 in the morning, I think, somewhere around there. And went to a domestic violence call. And uh, the boyfriend uh, shot him in the leg, right right, right in the leg. And and they returned fire and shot the guy in the chin. And, and I actually made it to the hospital before the ambulance got there. Um, very dramatic. And another one of my buddies was shot in the throat while we were working. Guy that we had worked with for, for a while, um, checking on a stolen car and, and got shot in the face. Another one of my friends got shot in the stomach, the thigh, and in the armpit. Um, during a search warrant. So another another good friend of mine got shot in the hip while at a domestic violence uh, thing. And so, uh, you know, once a year, twice a year, one, one of your officers is getting in some kind of hugely critical incident. But you have you have not been shot. No, no, thank God. No, I, I had my leg broken by a murder suspect. Right. I got 12 screws, two pins, a plate, and a rod in my left leg after fighting on pool road with a guy named Maxwell Mitchell who committed suicide in jail shortly after. Um, and he just done like a 14 year prison sentence as well and was out. Um, and 10 days after being out, uh, he went to go try to murder the same chick that got landed him in jail for the 14 years to begin with. I uh, tried to tackle him and my body, my torso went one way and my legs stayed the other way. And so basically my torso did a three, like 180 degrees and, uh, my feet stayed in the same position. So broke all the bones going up from, from my feet all the way up just past my knee or up to my knee and damaging a lot of my knee. But you know, I made a, pretty great recovery made it back to the line of in, in about five months lots of therapy which is pretty um, outstanding yeah yeah i mean they, they said it was like something that you know normally you'd be in therapy for like a year before you get back to like fully chasing people down and i was like nah dude like watch i'll be out because you know i was on fire back then like i really you know i felt like i was letting my team down to be out um out of the fight so there's a lot of cop injuries that just people just have no idea man how many cops get injured my partner in that, she had her neck cut open from her skull down just by her collarbone. Another guy in that same incident broke his arm. I've had cops flip their cars chasing suspects and get heavily injured. I had a friend get hit by a car while chasing chasing a subject. Ended his career. Another woman was fighting a drunk guy outside of the bar, working off duty. And the guy slammed her head into the brick wall. She had like a stroke and lost like 
you know, feeling in a lot of parts of her body from trying to kick a drunk guy out of a bar. It's real deal stuff, man. Well, and something I really didn't know when I started this podcast is how these injuries can be career ending. You lose everything that you've worked so hard for, for it could, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you were able to recover from that kind of injury. I think it's all a mindset too, right? Uh, yeah. the, the SWAT officer that got shot in the armpit, the stomach and the thigh definitely should have died. He's back on the SWAT team now, uh, <laughs> kicking indoors. He was back on the SWAT team. I think within like two years, he was back on the SWAT team. He was, do- I remember him doing his first pull up months after being shot in the armpit. He got shot in the leg, the stomach and in the armpit. And I, I mean, within months was back in the gym trying to do pull-ups. What a strong and phenomenal human being that guy is. And his story is incredible. Um, all he thought about when he got shot was I'm not going to say he knew he got shot in the armpit. He knew that's a fatal wound. Typically 99% of the time you die from getting shot. Your brachial arteries right there. Your heart's right there. And even when he was on the ground, he, 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 t- he told me the only thing I, I all the thing I could think about was I'm not going to cry like a little bitch because I don't want my friend's last memory of me to be whining and moaning on the floor. So I'm just going to be quiet and die like a man. That was his thought process laying on the ground while they were still kicking in the door. And I thought, you know, that's the guy I want to be like. <laughs> like, so I think mindset has to be a part of it. I think at some point you get so fed up with a job. I, I think if I would have broken my leg in my fifth or sixth year, I'd been like, fuck this. I'm out. I'm done. I'll, I'll milk this injury for two years. You said physical therapy was easy for me. The therapist had set goals and timelines for reaching those goals. I've always been a very goal-oriented person, so I love nothing more than crushing them. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I wrote that. Yeah. A little pretentious. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. But what it made me think of, and you may not know that I know this story, but I listened to you on another podcast, uh, Anthony McNeil's The Off-Duty Podcast. Okay, yeah. yeah. And you talked about it. it was such a sweet story and it actually has helped me and that was that your dad was i guess teching you to run oh yeah and it was yeah. a just can you get to the next what was it light pole yeah oh, i was a bit so back where i grew up i grew up in the but you know and you know i grew up between the ocean and the river and and so like there was really nothing but swamp to one side of me and then the ocean you know 10 miles down the road as the crow flies. So where I grew up was like a very rural, nobody's kind of like the no man's land of Florida. And we lived on this very long dirt road. And if you know anything about Florida, Florida is very hot. And on this dirt road was swamp on both sides. So oftentimes there would be alligators on the dirt road and you couldn't pass. You couldn't go. You couldn't even get on the dirt road. I would miss school because the school bus couldn't get around the alligator. And, and it was a very daunting road. It's very long, very long, like probably five miles long, straight, no curves. I I wanted to run with my dad and we were training for a river run. I couldn't have been, I mean, I I don't know if I put it in the book or not, but I I couldn't have been like probably more than like fifth grade and we would run and and it would get very brutally hot. And, uh, and I'd want to stop and walk and my dad would be like, all right, let's walk. But like, you've still got enough in you to make it to that next light pole. Right. And I was like, yeah, I can make it to that next light pole. He'd be like, well, all right, well, let's not walk. If you can make it to the next light pole, let's make it to the next light pole. And then we get to the next white pole. And he'd be like, you made it. You think you can make it before one more, before you just can't do it anymore? And I'd be like, yeah, I think I can go one more. And then we would do that game until, you know, eventually I would get to the point of we're back, dude. Now, now you can see the road that we live on. Can you make it to that road? Yeah, I got it. I can make it to that road. And then we make it to the road we live on. Now you can see our mailbox. Yeah, I can see our mailbox. Now we're picking up the pace, actually. So a mile back, I wanted to walk. And now I'm 
running twice as fast. You know, it's just a really cool way of, you know, that, and that, that's what got me through special forces assessment selection for sure. was just like, I actually came up with this thing. Like I'll, I'll quit at lunch. Right. I remember you said that. Yeah. And, I, and I'd make it to lunch. I'd be like, all right, I made it to lunch. I'm not dead. I, I don't, I'm not dying. Like I'll, I'll go to dinner. Cause if you live in that moment, like if you, if you live in that moment and you got two, you know, 50 pound water jugs that you're carrying with your hands and your forearms are burning like they've never run. And all you want to do is put that can down and just quit. You know, if you live in that moment, you're done, you're going to quit. But if you say like, dude, I don't care about these jugs. I'm going to quit when lunch gets here. So I'll figure out what to do with these jugs, but I will officially quit at lunchtime. And by the time lunch is over, by the time you get to lunch, you, you, those cans were an hour and a half ago. You've moved on to something else. It's a great story. And uh, I, I, I use it, I think about it in terms, I tend to think in terms of overwhelm, like everything I have to do, if I can just think about that next light pole, you know, yeah. just, just get, get that done. Who cares about the rest of the day? Just get, to, yeah. get yourself to lunch. We'll figure out what to do at lunch after that. Yeah. But if you look at it in its totality, it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. Were you and your dad close? Are you and your dad close? Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty close. You know, my, my dad's a very hard guy, very hard man. I'm a lot softer on my kids than he was on me. Uh, I do carry all over some of the stuff, but my dad's like, definitely my dad's like no nonsense. You know, he was just a blue collar mailman and his mindset's always been like, you go to work, you come home, you eat dinner, you go to bed and you go to work. Like there was no like extracurricular activity. And so I think like my relationship with my dad, like him seeing that I've done the opposite of that my whole life, trying out for special operations, being a cop, being a sommelier, owning a distillery, like all that stuff is so like, Still to this day, I think like his one words would maybe be like, need to get a job, need to get a real job, get you a pension. Where's your retirement at? You know? <laughs> yeah. This will bring it back to the book, but I almost had a heart attack when your poor mother was on a ride along with you. <laughs> I think she had a heart attack. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, again, I don't want to give everyone everything. Okay. There's plenty in that book that these stories, like the stories that you're bringing up, it's like, yeah, those are great stories, but I think it's like the underlying parts of those stories that really make the stories come to life. Like, yeah. but yeah, no, and my mom, you know, that, that was a, like a really big fight and it wasn't, shouldn't have been a fight, right? Should have just been like a, a nice, easy traffic stop that my mom could see. My mom right. just happened to be riding along from out of state. <laughs> she wanted to see uh, what it was like to pull a car over. And then I just, I mean, what are the odds, right? Like, what are the odds that I pull a car over for a broken taillight? And then this guy happens to have tons of cocaine in the car and never been arrested. And his dad was like a Sergeant major or something in the army fight or flight kicked in. And this dude was like fight and literally one of the most brutal fights of my whole career shattered my back tooth. I broke my arm, which I ended up cutting my cast off so that I wouldn't miss work. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah. It was a brutal fight, man. And right in front of my mother. And she went into shock. She was like, I can't believe this is happening. Like I'm bent over the hood of my car, just getting my face beat in unexpectedly by this dude who faked being gay. How did that come into play? I pulled him over for a broken taillight. And it wasn't just like my mom, my, my mom, it was New Year's Eve and I knew it was going to get really busy. It was really early in the night. It was like 7 p.m. So my mom came to the station to have dinner with me and we were, we were having dinner somewhere else. So I said, like, why don't you jump in my cop car? Because she's not, she's not from Raleigh. And where we were eating dinner was like in the inner city of Raleigh. So a lot of one way streets and it's New Year's Eve. So I was like, mom, just jump in my cop car. And, you know, we, you can have dinner with me and my squad. So she, she jumps in my cop car. She's like, this is the coolest thing ever. My mom doesn't swear. My mom is like super big, like ultra Christian, but like was raised homeless with nine brothers and sisters. So not a judgmental human being at all. Like the best mom in the world for sure. 
just the best human being in the world for sure. Like she's a saint. So the kindest, sweetest heart you've, you've ever come, like nobody will ever say a mean thing about my mom. So we're going to dinner and she's just like, Eric, this is so cool. You got your computer and your cell phone and this is all just so great. And oh my goodness, I'm, this is so cool. You know, and we have dinner and I buy her dinner and she just, you know, through the, you know, acts like she's like, it's the best thing in the world that I bought her dinner, you know? And so on the way home, she was like, um, so like, what's it like when you pull a car over? What's that like? You know? And I was like, do you want to see? And she was like, oh my gosh, can you do that? Is that allowed? Are you allowed to pull a car over? I said, yeah, of course. And she was, I was like, if they're doing something wrong, we could pull them over. And she was like, well, I mean, I don't want to like get somebody in trouble, but I kind of want to see what it's like. And I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, well, I'll find somebody. I'll give them a warning. And she's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. So uh, we drive around and there's this car and he has got a broken taillight. And, and, and not only does he have a broken taillight, but he stops at a green light. And there is this thing in law enforcement that if somebody right. stops at a green light, the car is stolen. hundred percent. Like that car is stolen. They always are so focused on the cops that they're like trying to like over be cautious. And yeah. for some reason, like stolen car people will always just like stop at green lights. So I'm laughing in my brain because I'm like, get the fuck out of here. You got to be kidding me. This is a stolen car. So I was like, well, I do a U-turn. As soon as I do a U-turn, the car takes off. My mom's like, well, that's not good. What is he doing? And I was like, well, it appears that he's running from us, mom. But we're going to chase <laughs> him down here really quick. So we chase him and he hits this back road. And now we're kind of in the middle of this very dark, like middle of nowhere road. No street lights or anything. It's very dark. And so I turn on all my blue lights and now we're going really fast. We're going like 100 miles an hour on this back road. And I'm not going to do this with my mom in the car and the car, the, the road spits out into like a very urbanized area and it's new year's Eve. So I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Uh, cause I don't, you know, I don't even know what it's probably just a stolen car and I don't have any other information, but while we're on this dark road, I'm, I'm going to give it a go. So I flip on all my blue lights for one last ditch effort and my, my siren to see if he'll just stop. And he slams on his brakes and he pulls over. And now I'm really far behind him. I'm like a football field behind him. Oh, wow. So I catch up to him and he stops. He could have just ran. And I approach the vehicle. I tell my mom to stay in the car. And I was like, hey, this, is, this one's weird. Like, I don't know why he stopped. So just stay here. Now, again, here's where we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. You're a cop. Nobody knows. I could have just turned around and left. I said, mm. fuck it. Who cares? You know, and that's that fear thing that you get to deal with as a cop that nobody talks about being a stubborn guy, even with my mom in the car, probably foolish and young at the time. Uh, and I say young, but I was 33, but I mature slowly. I was 33 at the time. But um, so I, I, I approached the car and he's crying. And so I was like, Hey man, what's going on? And he's, he says, I just see so many officers just messing with black people and I'm black and I'm scared. And I just, I just don't want to get killed by the police. And I was like, he's like, can you get me a black officer? And I was like, Hey man, like all I, like I'm empathizing with this guy because now I'm like, okay, this guy's scared of me and I'm going to prove to him that he doesn't need to be scared of me. So I'm going to be cool cop. Now I'm going to be cool guy. Like, I don't care that we just went hundred miles an hour down a 35 mile an hour road. I don't care that you stopped at a green light. Like I want you to like me. So I'm like, Hey man, no dude. Like, bro, I'm not that guy. Like I don't even write tickets. Like I'm going to give you a warning. You got a broken tail eye, dude. Like it's cool. And he was like, and he starts looking at the center console of his car. And that's when everything triggers to me because when, when somebody has something they're not supposed to have, they go to it. If somebody has a gun in their pocket, they'll start tapping the side of their body that the gun is at. They'll actually like rub their knee. They'll like rub that right knee. If they're doing that, they've probably got a gun. If they start stretching out their right arm 
or their left arm, that's where the gun's at. If they're looking down at their pocket, that's where the drugs are at. And so he starts to look at this center console and I'm like, oh, oh, there's something in this center console. And he's crying over a broken taillight. And he tried to run from me. He's like, all this stuff is starting to process in my mind as I'm standing here. And so I think in my brain and, and, and I, listen, I, I've met the, 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 I had to go to a psych psychologist, psychiatrist. They want, they broke this thing down. They made it a training video. So the psychiatrist wanted to know everything I was thinking because I was wearing what I was thinking on my sleeve. And the SWAT team actually did a breakdown of this video because there were so many indicators that I was going to get hurt here. And mm. I'm trying to diffuse this situation in any way. And you can just see it on my face. Like you can literally on the video camera, you can see my face from my car camera of me like, contemplating my next move here and so i'm like hey man so i think at the time that there's a gun or some just bad drugs in the center console so i'm like if i just remove him from the center console i'm probably going to be safe probably going to be okay and so i say hey man like i don't want you to be scared why don't we step out of this vehicle and we'll just talk man to man dude and and you'll see that like i'm, I'm just it's just me and you and he's like okay but are you going to touch me now, anytime you step somebody out of the car, you always put your hand on them. It doesn't have to be aggressive. If I put my hand on you and you move back, I know that there's some resistance there. I know that something's going to happen. Because if I'm helping a normal lady like down the stairs and I put my, my hand gently on her back, she doesn't flex back. She just goes with it. So we can learn a lot by putting your hands on somebody. So rule number one, if you ever step somebody out as law enforcement, you're always going to put your hand on them. And again, not aggressively, but just Put your hands on them because then you can start to feel, are they tense? Are they tight? Are they loosey-goosey? You can learn a lot. But I, because this guy had confused me with this whole gay act that I was like, no, I'm not going to touch you. Come on out. And so he's like, okay. So he, he gets out of the car. And now my thought process is he's going to run. Whatever's in that center console, he wants to get away from it. He doesn't like it. And he's going to run from me. And I'm not going to chase him because my mom is here. And that's going to be my excuse. Because it's New Year's night and I shouldn't have been pulling anybody over anyway. Because if I pull somebody over at 7 p.m., that leaves my squad fucked for mm -hmm. New Year's when it's really going to start popping off. When you got like thousands of people in the streets and barricades need to be set up and fireworks need to be tended to and all the things. So I don't need to be involved in whatever small minute drugs that this guy may or may not have in his center console. So my thought process was I'll step him out. I won't touch him and he'll run and I won't chase him. And this will all be over. And I get out and he turns like he's going to run. And he takes a step to the front of the car and then he just turns around and he doesn't run. And he's like, show me my broken taillight. But there was no gay lisp there. Uh -huh. It was show me your, show me my broken taillight. So now I'm like, fuck man, this guy's like schizophrenic or something. So we walk back and he's like, okay, put your head in here. Put your head in here. I want you to see where it's burned out. Put your head in my trunk. And I'm like, I'm not putting my head in your trunk. He's like, put your head right here. And he's oh pointing. I'm like, I'm not putting my head in your trunk. I was like, matter of fact, have a seat because now we're not talking gay anymore. We're not talking about this like very feminine crying. And listen, I've, I've done a podcast about this before and literally had a gay person drive all the way to my distillery to fight with <laughs> me why I talked about it. There's no, I'm not being mean to gay people. I'm painting you a picture. If this guy was a librarian, I would have said he was a librarian that, that didn't look like he was going to beat my ass. So, but we don't have any of that anymore. So you changed demeanor. What I have now is a man that's assertively telling me a dominant, dominant like figure saying, put your head in here in a very unreasonable way. Like nobody 
is going to put their head in your fucking trunk, dude. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, no, man, like ha- have a seat. And he's like, no, put your head in here. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And his hands are gripped onto this thing. And you can see the flex and the white of his knuckles. You can see all this on the camera. And I could see it there. Like, I'm like, this guy wants me to put my head down here so he can slam this on my head, which is obviously not going to work because he's wearing it all in his sleeve. So now I know I have a fight. Pro- like I, the fight or flight is gone in this guy. And it's like fight. So I'm like, dude, you need to have a seat right now. Just have a seat. And then he goes back to the gay thing again. <laughs> See, I told you, you're going to hurt me. <laughs> you're going to arrest me for the book. And you won't even look in here. Now I'm like, no, 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 listen, man. Like I said, let me just be real with you, dude. You're scaring me. Like you're in and out. You're like, you know, you're mad at me, but you're crying. And it's like, dude, I'm just trying to like get you a warning. Like have a seat. He's like, well, why do you want me to sit down? And I was like, because I don't like, I feel like you're going to try to hurt me. He's like, why would I hurt you? You're a fucking cop. I would never do that. And I was like, I know, right? Like, I would love to believe that. But like, you kind of like are coming across like you want to hurt me, dude. And he was like, of course not. And I was like, all right, well, if you're not going to hurt me, prove it to me by sitting down. And then I'll go sit on the hood of my car. And we're just going to chat this out. Because like you and I need to come to like, I need to tell you, like, you need to learn. And I said this, you need to learn how to like not run from cops and, and, and the importance of this. So I can't just let you go. Like, we have to have a talk. So he agrees to sit down and as he sits down, a car comes and I, I, I'm sure this is my check-in. This has got to be my backup. And Mm. so I look to like flag it down and I'm looking at the car and the car doesn't slow down and it just passes me. And I was like, fuck, that's not a cop. (laughs) And I turn around and homeboy is already standing up and punching me square in my face. And he just hits me as hard as he can unprotected. Right in my face. And it folds me up over the car and he gets on top of me. I roll off the car. He stands over top of me, hits me in the face a few times. It appears that I'm knocked out on the film, uh, you know, a little bit like um, my, my ghost stiff. He tries <laughs> to step over me. He trips and falls. I come to, I jump on top of him. I put my arms around him. He bites me. I punch him in the back of the head. I punch him so hard that it breaks my arm. And so now I'm like, ow, he rolls that way. He rips my shirt off takes off running. I chase him. He jumps back in the car and he goes for the center console. And at this point I know now I'm fucked because he's going to pull a gun out of the center console and he's going to kill me. And then he's going to kill my mom. So now I have to win. Like there's no, like, just let him go. Like now I'm in it. So I chase him into the car. I dive into the car. I, all I can think of is I don't want to get shot. I, he's got the center console open. I smash the center console shut on his hand. He yelps drive tries to get the car into drive but he can't he he doesn't have the brake pushed in so he can't get into drive so i pull on his little afro and i yank it back and i pull my pepper spray out with my left hand and i douse us both because i'm trying to reach around him so i spray us both my eyes seal shut his eyes seal shut we both can't breathe because we're in the car we start coughing I'm, i'm trying to just hold on to his hair i'm you know pepper spray is extremely painful especially when you take it right to the face like a porn star (laughs) Um, it really hurts. And so I am trying to beat this guy's head in off of the steering wheel, the best I know hand, but my arm is kind of broken. So it's not really working. And and I I know it's broke because I've already broken my leg. I know the tingling in my fingers. I know, like, I know what that's from. So I end up, he says he quits. He just stops. And it was so surreal. He just says, I'm done. I'm done. And I said, are you sure? And he says, yeah, I'm done. And I said, well, then get out and get on your face. So he gets out nice and slow and he lays down his face and I get on top of him. And I reach for my radio and my radio is not there because he had ripped it off. And I look and my radio is just out of arm's length. And I know I got to get to this radio and scream for help because I can't get to my gun. My arm's broken. 
So I just yell at him. I said, look, if you move, I, oh, I don't yell at him. I say very calmly before I yell at him, I say, look, man, if you move, I'm done fighting you. I'm going to shoot you. And he's like, please, dear God, don't show me. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And I said, if you fucking move, I'll blow your head off. And he's like, I'm not going to move. And so I lunge for this radio and I grab the radio and I yell really loud, like, Raleigh, I need help. Please help me. Please help me. I'm like signal two five, you know, whatever it is, you know, signal two five means to everybody come. And then I jump back on top. I'm like, don't do it. Don't you fucking move. And he's like, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. And then, you know, the, the blue wave comes and some cop is like, Hey man, I thought your mom was with you. <laughs> and I was like, she is. And we walk <laughs> over to the car and she's like in shock. Like she's not looking at me. She's looking straight out the window. And I said, mom, are you okay? And she goes, did you shoot that young man? And I said, no, ma'am. She said, and she's not looking at me. She's looking straight out the window. And she says, did he shoot you? And I said, no, ma'am. And then she slowly turns her head and looks at me and she goes, I want to go home. And I was like, I'm going to take you home. I have to go to the hospital, but I'll take you home. So yeah, that was my mom's story. Your poor mother. (laughs) She cries. She can't tell that story. Oh, really? She can't tell that story. She, she, she just, she'll get like partially way into it. And then she just. She's a wreck, dude. She cries. We tried to get her to tell it over Christmas break. My my parents had some friends over, and my brother was like, Mom, tell him about that story when Eric got, you know, he's my little brother. Tell him that story about when Eric got his ass whooped in front of you. So it, it was all fun and jokes, and she tried to tell the story, and then everybody was crying. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Oh. Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, that was that was a journey. <laughs> I was, there's a policy now. No mom's allowed on ride along. Uh, I actually thought you were not allowed to ride along with a family member. It's a law now. I mean, it's not a law, but it's a policy. Ours now. Yeah. It, it yeah. is now. It wasn't the policy then, um, but it, they they quickly made it a policy that no family ride alongs um, right. allowed. <laughs> Poor thing. Over a broken taillight, yeah. and the guy never had a gun. It was an eight right. ball of cocaine. I thought right. I thought for sure it was a gun. Me too. Well, it, when not because I was there, because I was reading your book. <laughs> right. No, I thought it was too. Like I, literally, that was like one of those moments where I was like, "Holy shit, this is it, dude! Like this is yeah. I win this fight, or I'm gonna <laughs> die." <laughs> yeah, uh, that is scary. And you talk about you know a lot of officers. I've said, does fear come into it? Does fear play into it? And most of the time, I get no. Most of the time, I get you just fall back on your training. I wish more cops would talk about being scared. Yeah. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'll tell you, there, there's just some things that are fucking scary and you're not going to do them. Dogs. I don't fuck with dogs. You get an angry dog on a call? No, I'm not doing that. So everybody has their thing. But if, if you can embrace your fear, if you know what your fears are and you know what you're afraid of, then you can work on that. But I think a lot of cops do get in these shootings because they're, you know, because they're scared. Mm. Rightfully so. Like, you could die. So you should be scared. Well, what I, I was also, when you're talking about your family and growing up in Florida, one of the things I learned is that you learned sign language. Yeah. yeah. And that played into a significant incident yeah. in your career. Yeah. I failed in Spanish in high school. And you had to have two semesters. That's 18 weeks of foreign language before you could graduate high school. So that's a nine week and a nine week. And I was failing that first nine weeks of Spanish terribly. And they, because I grew up near the Florida school for the deaf and blind, which is the largest school for the deaf and blind, I think in the world, at least it was at that time, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's definitely the biggest one in the United States. It's the Helen Keller school for the deaf and blind. It's in St. Augustine, Florida. It's massive. 
because we grew up so because they were there for uh, American sign language, there was a proposal to make American sign language a foreign language credit because at the time it wasn't. And so we were the first ever American sign language class for a credit, but because there was no real curriculum and they didn't know how they were going to do it. The, the stipulation was that if you took four semesters, that's eight, it's two, that's two sets of 18 weeks. So double. So 36 weeks, you could take 36 weeks of American sign language and it didn't matter if you passed or failed, you would get a foreign language credit. So I was like, hell yeah, dude. Like literally I can go to a class and not do shit and fail it and I get my credit or I can go for 18 weeks and try hard and then may or may not pass or fail. I'll take the 36 weeks all day long. So I get into American Sign Language, find out that if you do something for 36 weeks, you learn a lot from it. Um, and then it just so happened that I learned pretty good amount of sign language, so much so that my parents were very involved in church at that time. Billy Graham was coming to Jacksonville, Florida, and they needed interpreters. And so they would give you like a three to five minute block of his speech to interpret and you would memorize it before the, before the thing anyway. And so I was like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. Like, you know, and, and, and so my parents got me involved in that. I think I was like 16 or 17 years old. Twice a week, I would go to this big giant church and practice for this whole Billy Graham thing. And, and then I did that, you know, I did the Billy Graham interpretation thing. At 18, I moved out and I moved to St. Augustine, um, spitting distance from the Florida School for Deaf and Blind. And the apartment that I lived in, almost everybody in the, the complex was deaf. It was like 50-50. I spoke sign language. And so the, there was two kids that lived underneath us that liked to surf. And I was big into surfing at the time. And so I was teaching those kids how to surf. And they they were deaf. And um, their mom would leave them with me uh, while she was at work or on the weekends. They would just chill with me and hang out. And so I got a lot of sign language practice at 17, going into 18 years old. Fast forward 20 years, I'm about to get off of work. I'm headed down to a domestic call and um, I get a phone call on my cell phone and they said, hey, Eric, there's a deaf chick about to jump off of a bridge and we see in your foreign language thing that you spoke sign language. Do you fluently speak sign language? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty pretty good. I haven't used it in a long time, but I like, I can communicate. And I had gone to some other calls as a cop and, and spoke sign language. So, you know, I, I know enough to get me through for sure. And they're like, well, then you need to get to this bridge. So I turn around, I head over to the bridge and the bridge is completely locked down. It's rush hour traffic. So the the highway underneath her is shut down from as far as the eyes can see, thousands of cars, right? There's already a helicopter up and the hostage negotiation team, I mean, everybody's out and the, the bridge is empty except for one girl dangling her feet off of this high overpass. I go over to the hostage negotiator or the crisis intervention guy and he's like, she won't let any cops on the bridge. And every time we get close, she wants to jump. And we have no lines of communication with her. So what can you do? And I said, yeah, fuck, I don't know, dude. I'm a street cop. I mean, I was like, I can, I can, I mean, like, what have you tried? And they're like, we've walked out there. And I was like, and then what happened? And he's like, she was going to jump. And I was like, well, what do you think is going to happen when I go out there? And like, well, maybe if you can establish a line of communication, maybe this will work out for the good. I don't know. We got to do something. And I was like, all right. And he was like, my sergeant at the time was like, hey, man, don't fuck this up. And I was like, thanks, dude. Thanks, because, like, I'm not already freaking out. Like, I'm about to go use sign language for the first time in 20 years on a chick that's about to jump off of a bridge in front of all of these people and a news helicopter. And that's the best you got is don't fuck this up. Um, probably going to fuck it up. It's like you don't tell the kicker, like, at the end of the game, hey, man, don't fucking wing it. 
Like, why would you say that? Um, right. So I start walking out on this bridge, man, and she she goes to jump, and I just throw out every sign that I can muster. Like, hey, yo, stop. What are you doing? Like, please, 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 please. And so she starts signing back to me, and I'm able to move in, and we're able to have this dialogue. And the whole thing was really dramatic. It was up and down. She really wanted to die. She was serious about it. There was no way I was going to get close to her. She had thought this through. She was 15 years old. She put herself in a position where there's, there was no like tackling her off the bridge or anything like that. And at one point, she was holding on with both her arms and dangling her entire body off this bridge. You're like, Jesus, like if she signs to me, she's going to fall and die because she's got no hands. Right. Um, then it got to the point where she'd kind of gotten back on the bridge, you know, and there was another cop that went out there and stopped traffic out on the highway. Oh, and geez. I would thought like, he's going to get hit because it's four o'clock. Just getting that time where traffic was really thick and heavy, but it wasn't at a standstill yet. And then I just thought like, man, like everybody's doing such a really great job. I'm, I hate to fuck this up. And, um, but yeah, I just used sign language to her and we signed and she told me all of her problems. And, you know, we talked about it in the book, um, what her problems were. And, and she probably has the worst mom that I've, I've ever heard of in my whole life. Just an evil, evil woman. And she was prostituting that, that girl. I don't know if I mentioned that oh. in the book or not. If I don't think I put it in the book for her sake. But later on in life, I got a prostitution call and her mom was pimping her out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just really messed up life. Just really fucked up life. Um, her mom's words that day when I asked her why she didn't know sign language was, I have three hearing kids and one kid that can't hear. Why should I have to learn sign language for the one that can't hear? seriously it's crazy so i know why she didn't have any reason to live I mean, she has a shitty shitty yeah. home shooting house but you know i i use sign language the, the the police department made way too big of a deal out of it uh that that was kind of the beginning of of my relationship with the law enforcement they really wanted to use that case as a landmark case for them um i refused to give my name i refused to talk to any media the department said we're going to ask you if we can drop your name and i said no I don't want it. And they were like, well, you know, we don't have to. We're just asking you to be nice. And I was like, okay, well, then if you're going to do it anyway, then why don't you just fucking do it? Like, why would you ask? I'm telling you, no, I don't want my name in the news report. I'm not, I'm not talking to the media about this. I said, this was that girl's worst day of her life at 15 years old. And the reason why she wanted to jump off the bridge is because she doesn't get to go to a deaf school anymore and that she can't get a boyfriend at her hearing school. She starts doing these text messages with other boys and because they'll never meet her because when they do, they'll find out she's deaf and they won't like her anyway. And they'll see her big giant cochlear implant. And then her mom takes her phone away because she catches her doing that, which I get it. Her mom has to do that, but her home life sucks. Her mom is, is a, is a terrible human being, you know, does lots of crack and prostitutes for crack. And you know, I think the dad's in prison or something like that, but I mean, there's a big shitty life. And why does she want this replayed over and over again? But they did a story with the mom and her mom was just like, oh, you know, we're so thankful for this cop. Uh, but but I refused to, to do a thing because I just, you know, I never wanted to have any clout for that. They sent me to an award ceremony against my will. I, I didn't wear my uniform. Uh, I caught some heat from that. They're like, why didn't you wear your uniform? I was like, because I didn't want to be here in the first place. You're the ones, it's my day off. You can't force me to wear my uniform to a voluntary award ceremony that I don't want to be at. Everybody gave a speech. I did not. I just went up there, grabbed my podium. I didn't even stand for the picture. So then the department wanted a picture the next day in my class A uniform with the reward while I was at work. So I reluctantly forgot the plaque. And then they were like, you got to bring the plaque. You know, this is a big deal. And I, you know, my Sarge pulled in. He's like, dude, just bring the plaque. Like, why Why are you dying on this hill? Like, just get your picture. I was like, dude, this is the hill I'm going to die on. I don't want to do it. And so I hid the plaque in a cop car, a rando cop car. And uh, about a year ago, 
I guess maybe like two years now, like I just stopped being a cop, but I got a call. It says, Hey, are you Eric Tansy? I said, yeah. And he says, Hey man, we got your, we got this crown Vic at an auction. We ripped all the seats out of it. And we found this plaque under the seats <laughs> for officer of the year for his right. life-saving thing. So, uh, yeah, that was just, and, you know, the chief was really butthurt about that. Um, because the, the, the department really wanted to use that for clout and they wanted to make that press go a long way and their exact words where we don't get a lot of good press and this is perfect press for us, please. Why won't you give a story? And yeah. I was like, for that reason right there, we don't need to tell that story. Right. People don't need to know that. We cops do that every day just because she's deaf because it looks good on paper. Right. You're willing to blow this. Like, what do you think about the girl that tried to commit suicide that they tased to get her to stop? Or right. what about the guy that, uh, you know, sat, sat in a room for over an hour with a guy with a loaded handgun and talked him right. out of committing suicide with a loaded handgun? Why doesn't his story get to be told? You know, right. because this was a black female that was deaf and it, it, it checked all the boxes and I was a white cop that's the only reason they didn't care about her and they don't, right. they didn't care about her outcome in life. All they cared about was they got their story that fit their narrative. White cop right. talks down black girl off of a bridge. Who's deaf. Right. Look at us, you know? Right. And that's sad that that's the state we've got in. That's, that's how much race plays in being a cop. Everybody right. is so concerned about everybody's color. And this was the beginning of the end for you. They basically, yeah. you felt, fired you. They fired you because you had a distillery. Yeah. But they already knew about the distillery. Yeah. And you, you, I saw some of the press that you did when you got fired. So cringe, right? <laughs> it was like, you, you, you did not hold back. No, I never do. But it no, was crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's how, you know, that's, that's police house politics work. You know, if they don't want you there, they're going to get rid of you. I assume you saw this coming, but it had to feel bad when it did. Yeah, I was, I was officer of the year that year right. too, and I, and I, I was like the senior training officer um, on our squad, which just kind of meant like I had been, you know, the, all the other training officers had moved on or got promoted, and now I was the training officer, and I was very good training officer with my rookies. And matter of fact, that if if a rookie wasn't going to make it or pass, they sent them to me because I never failed a single rookie. And, and I just have a way of, of working with people and, and teaching people and training people and making them excited about work and taking some of the stress of being a cop off of their shoulders. And I think that's why all my rookies really enjoyed being with me is because they were like, all right, this dude is serious. And this guy is all about like doing good police work, but he's not an asshole. And, you know, I feel confident that I can talk to him and that, that we can work through some of these issues because, you know, my training officers didn't really work through that with me. They were, you know, I had to figure a lot of stuff out on my own, which, could get you killed. You know, one bad mistake, I could have died, you know, and because right. they want you to learn the hard way. I don't want to do that with my rookies. I say, look, okay, are you scared right now, homie? Are you scared right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It's okay. Tell me you're scared. I need to know. Yeah, yeah dude. Okay, what are you scared about? I don't want to go in that attic. So look, I've been there too. I've been there too. I've been right where you're at, homie. I tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to do it this time. We're going to go together. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to die together if we die on this, but we have to go in the attic. Like addicts are scary and it sucks, but we, we're not firemen. We don't get to just say like, Oh, we're not doing this. We're going, we're going, you know? And, and that's just kind of how I work with, with human beings. And so I was really at a point in my career where I was happy being a cop. All the homeless people knew me. They respected me. Uh, they, they knew I was going to give them biscuits or take them out for biscuits. And, and I had some, you know, I knew a lot of the restaurants that were helping out and, and providing the community policing was really kind of working out for, for us and times were really good. So it was a real blow to get fired when I was, what I felt was the peak of my career 
physically I was in the best shape of my life. I had the knowledge of being a cop pretty well. And I just thought it was a big blow to the, to the department too, like to my squad. I was a team player. Nobody, there's nobody that said, man, they might say he's a crazy guy or, or something like that, but nobody will ever say, I don't, I don't like that guy because there's nothing I wouldn't do. There's no call I wouldn't take. I didn't sham. I never called in sick. I never did anything for promotion. So I wasn't a threat to anybody. I was never trying to get promoted. I didn't put in for, for a detective or anything ever. Riding the line was my passion. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a street cop. Well, that, that's a real loss to have that taken away from you. So you, you get fired. I know somewhere in there you got the sommelier, you became a sommelier, but before we get there, and you did open the distillery. Yeah, yeah, I still own it. Yep. About, a, what, two years later, you and Mike the Cop started Failure to Stop, and yeah. it was, this was, I launched this in September 2020 at the height of the riots, and you guys launched also in the aftermath of the civil unrest or during the civil unrest. Um, what inspired failure to stop the two of you? What well, was the brainchild by drinking bros podcast, which is mm. like was started by the black rifle coffee company guys. The drinking bros had me on a show after I got fired. Um, and drinking bros has probably got to be within like the top 20 largest podcast of its genre of, if not of all time, I mean, millions and millions of, downloads that they have they had me on as a guest which was crazy i've been a fan of this show forever and now i'm on it and they thought i was just the funniest thing because i was telling a lot of funny stories i was drinking rum with them at the time too so i was like a little bit loosey-goosey there you know it, and i told you know told my stories how i tell them and and george floyd died like four or five months later they were like dude can you come in and break that down for us and i came and i broke it down i think i shocked them i, I think they just wanted a black or white answer and i when i went on there and i i talked about perception versus reality and i gave them like all the this could be this, this could be that. At the end, they were like, oh my God, like there's a lot of nuances to that case. A lot of things went wrong to make that case happen. And I think at the end of that case, they were like, yo, we got, this is like, we should do this with every cop case because you're bringing things that we had no, we never even thought of. They were like, let's do a show and let's try to get some real clout behind it. We'll get Mike the cop on board. And they got me Mike the cop, which was a blessing because I was thrown into the podcasting world, having never podcast and uh, and I was thrown into a guy who couldn't be more disciplined, more learned, and more reasonable than Mike the Cop at the time, business-wise. Like, you might not like his opinion. He has some strong opinions, right? But that what's, that's what makes him famous. But business-wise, like working with Mike the Cop, huge, huge opportunity for me. I've learned probably more from Mike the Cop than anybody else. That's how it always started. And so it lives on. I know Mike has left retired yeah he retired Reti mike the cop altogether oh okay and now drew breezy is your co-host on fridays for the flagship breakdown show yeah as i mentioned in my last episode with jonathan bates failure to stop has many iterations which i will be sure to cover at the end of the podcast and i'll have those in the episode notes again what do you think it means to officers listening to failure to stop from what I hear from other cops is, you know, overwhelmingly, thank you. You know, thank you for telling our side of the story finally and not being a douchebag about it. You know, like, thank you for being honest. We, and, and listen, not all cops agree with the shit I say. Some, yeah. some cops really disagree. I mean, I, I've always made the joke every other week, I'm either a right winged racist or a left wing nut. <laughs> I, I mean, depending on what side of the, t the case I take, because I, I really truly am inspired by journalism now since I started this podcast and I, I never wanted to be a journalist, but I figured if I was going to start telling the stories of these cases and I was going to break them down, 
that I had to do a good bit of journalism before I could do that. I have to know the totality of it. And I, it boggles my brain that there are so many news outlets on TikTok and Instagram and of course, mainstream media. There's so many people who are willing to talk about things that they don't have sources for or that they have anonymous sources. It's really crazy because that's, that's not journalism. Journalism mm-hmm. is what you do. You go out to the person and you get their firsthand, their, their firsthand account of what happened. And then you right. tell that story. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I, I certainly enjoy the breakdowns that you do. I learn something every time and I think they're important for civilians in particular. If you have the time, I did want to touch on an incident you broke down on failure to stop. It was actually back still with Mike the Cop, and this occurred in Akron, Ohio. I was particularly interested in how this played out, and I wanted to discuss it with you. I'm using up a lot of your time. It's a long <laughs> show. Sorry. I talk a lot. No, it's great. I also don't think I've ever been like interviewed this hard before, so <laughs> most of the time I'm just ripping jokes. <laughs> well... You know, let's just do, I don't want to go into the whole incident because the the yeah. listeners won't have the benefit of the uh, video. I do have the YouTube link to that breakdown, so I'll put it in the episode notes so that folks can see what we're talking about. No, um, I mean, really, it was a, there was an incident in Ohio and they chased the guy into a lit parking lot. Um, after he ran from a car, for whatever reason, you can go back and listen to the breakdown. And then all the cops shoot him a whole bunch of times. My first thought was everyone was criticizing, and you addressed this, everyone was criticizing how many shots there were. But right. if you've got seven, eight officers, and each of them sees the threat at the same time, they're not going to look at each other and say, okay, are you going to shoot or am I going to shoot? They're going to shoot. And they're going to probably unload their weapon, right? I, like I know, I'm not a cop, but my right. guess. Absolutely. You're going to pull that trigger until that dude hits the ground. And unfortunately, adrenaline does take over in these kind of incidents. And, and, and you'll see it in many, many, uh, not so much now because I think cops are afraid because they see mm. how many cops are getting crucified for that kind of thing. But like definitely most of your shootings, they're putting several, several rounds into that person. Yeah. Well, and I just thought it's, it's, it's the kind of thing I'm really grateful you guys do because, you know, I was able to look at that. I felt objectively and most people just look at it like they just lit this guy up for no reason, you know? So I think what's even more telling about that case is, is, and I, I'm, I'm probably, I'm sure we brought it in the breakdown, but what are the chances? What's the coincidence there? What are the chances of the coincidence that every single cop, all eight of them fired at the same exact time? if they all didn't see the same threat at the same time. So if there was zero threat, there would be no chance that all those guys decided to pull the trigger at the same time. So what that threat was, they all perceived it, which makes it reasonable. It wasn't like one guy started shooting. So everybody started shooting. Everybody started shooting at the exact same time because they all saw the same affirmative movement at the same exact time, which indicated to all of those dudes at the same exact time that now is the time to shoot. And they all shot at the same time. And, and tunnel vision had set in when you, when you, when you're involved in a shooting tunnel vision sets in, you don't know what the guy to the right or left of you is doing. You don't know right. how many bullets he's firing. All you know is what's at the end of your gun and does it disappear or not? And, and oftentimes you don't know, you know, you you're, you don't even see a human. All you see is this blur in front of you and you're just going to keep squeezing until that blur goes away. <laughs> right. That's right. how, that's how this works. That's how the adrenaline works. Right. You know, I equate it to, if you ever played football, uh, or if you've watched football, 
you know, the linebacker that gets the late hit and half of the crowd thinks he did it on purpose. And the other half of the crowd, uh, thinks it was an accident. Um, and in reality, if you really want to be objective and think about it or put yourself in that situation, this linebacker has a target and he has a very small window to hit on this target. Very similar to a cop shooting somebody. He's not allowed to hit above the, the shoulders and he's not allowed to hit below the waist. He also is not allowed to hit after the guy's got rid of the ball, but he's also got to be worried about getting blocked on his way in. So he rounds that corner and he sets his sight onto that target. And he says, okay, there's my target. He has the ball and he's getting tackled. Now he knows that I've got to put my cheek on that dude's ass cheek to make a form tackle or else I'm going to get hurt. So he goes and moves his cheek to the side so that he doesn't get hurt. He opens his arms, but he can't open them too wide because if you do that, you telegraph your movement and now the guy can juke you or move. So he has to only open his arms so wide as to not telegraph himself. And he's got to think about this all while running full speed. And then he opens his arms at the last second. And he puts his head across this guy's body and he absolutely demolishes this guy into the pavement only to find out that a millisecond before all of that, the guy got rid of the ball. <laughs> and now half of the crowd is judging you that you're a monster and you hit the guy too late. And the other crowd is cheering you on because you did what your job is. But nobody ever put themselves in that position to know all the things that go into that tackle. And it's the same with the shooting. You know, you, you, right. no way to know. Wow. I couldn't think of a better description. <laughs> that, that about says it all right there. Well, that's, you know, the perfect analogy because all anyone does with police is Monday morning quarterbacking. And yeah. it's, oh, it's always people who have never been a cop. And it's always with, a, you know, a 30 second video, not the full entire incident. That is what is so enraging. Like, can you wait a minute? and listen to the explanation for the incident. But no, right. no. Do you miss being a police officer? No, not really. Yeah. Um, you know, I, no, no. I, I've now on my fit, my, I got my fifth kid coming one wife, five kids. I, I was wondering if you were joking about that. No. <laughs> so you really do. have. I have four kids and one on the way. That's all, amazing. All with the same wife. Um, <laughs> she must be pretty cool right now. Like that's my life. Yeah, that yeah. is my life there. Uh, uh, all three of my three of my kids are sponsored skaters, and they're under ten years old. Um, they are all wow. riding on on a shop team. They have a podcast called Gromit Vomit, um, where they're interviewing Olympic athletes, Ryan Sheckler, pro surfers, Rob Machado, biggest names in action sports. These kids have, have nailed it. Not from any work that I've done for them. Um, them and their little buddy JB Two Supergrom. And uh, my kids work very, very hard. They want to be Olympians. And so they are at, they're grinding it out. Family is really big to me. I learned that after, after policing. Family is so important. And, and so many cops, you know, that's, that's, my other, that's my other mission right now is, is trying to convince cops that, yeah, it's cool to be a cop, dude. But it's really cool to be an awesome dad and an awesome husband. And too many cops forget that. They're so focused, hyper-focused on fixing their street that's been fucked up for 30 years that they forget to fix their house, fix their home. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important too. The job seems to take a lot out of people. Immensely. Uh, so I'm a big advocate. That's why we do the show last call on fair stop. Mm -hmm. You just have something else to talk about, man. You gotta, you gotta put it back to the family. I, I fear that if I would not have gotten fired, I think I'd have been a shitty dad. I think mm. I'd have been a shitty dad which would probably have been a shitty husband too, um, because I was hyper-focused on the career at the time. And I think I would have been hyper-focused on the career and hyper-focused on being a distillery owner. And I would have missed this whole part of my life. So I'm very thankful yeah. that God threw that wrench, 
which is a big reason why I dropped the lawsuit on the city. Mm. I didn't know you had one. Because I kind of feel like I, the, the city really did me a service by letting me go. Because I, I think I would have been, a, I don't think my kids would have been who they are right now if, if I would have stayed. Well, that's, that's great. You know, God knows you're still here, right? Yeah. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Abby. I really appreciate your, you, you having me on. This is a treat. And uh, it's cool that you ask me serious questions. Most people don't get serious with me. Uh, well, good. I, I I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. I read your book and and quickly, and I you know went back and looked at old failure to stops. And and I apologize. I did not send you that last night, like with any expectation of you sitting down and even looking at a chapter. So I was dying to. I was dying to. It was so good, really, Eric. It is so good. I can't wait till it comes out. Do you have a timeline for folks? Wish I did. Um, okay. My book has been put in the hands of people who know a lot more than I do. And so they're all making a lot of the decisions right now, which means I don't know anything, but about the book, <laughs> I leave it on, you know, it's like you turn it over to people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Like these guys know how to sell books. They've sold books a lot. So here you go, boys. And, um, when you, you know, now I'm kind of out of the loop, so I don't know. So. Okay. And before you go, I know you are a sommelier. Maybe <laughs> while this is uploading, we can talk wine for a few minutes, Yeah. but I, I think that people need to, you, you always downplay your intelligence, but for you to have achieved that is quite an accomplishment. I mean, that is not a small thing. I was the hardest thing I've ever done for sure. Um, yeah. and I probably studied 10 times more than other people because, because I'm a C student at best. Um, <laughs> I, and when I say I studied more than anybody else has probably ever studied for that test. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Basically, almost like borderline ulcers for that test. Wow. I studied for two and a half years. Um, for the certified specialist of wine exam, um, which at the time I think had like a 70% fail rate. I, I had, I literally was studying all day, all night, maps in my bathroom, maps in the living room. I had note cards in every orifice of my home. And when I went in to take a test, I thought I was going to get a hundred. And I thought this was going to be my first test that I'd ever gotten a hundred because I'd never put more passion, more work. I, I volunteered at wineries and uh, was really in tune with the winemaking process, viticulture, viniculture, uh, worked with a chemist for a little while to learn the chemistry behind wine and look through the microscope at, at, at different yeast strands and how yeast is affected by different bacterias and all sorts of things. And um, I sat down the test and the first 10 questions came out. I didn't know the answer to any of them. Oh and I thought, this is insane. Like, how do I, I, how do I not know any of these answers? And, and I ended up getting a 77 on that hmm. test. And a 75 is passing. So, oh my gosh. You know, I, I, I still feel like it's a win. You know, I asked my friend who's way smarter than I am and has a college degree and, and might even have a master's degree, but I asked him how he did on the test. And, I, and, and, and he told me, he's like, I got an 81. And I was like, oh, thank God. Um, I got a 77. And, yeah. and he works in the industry. So I didn't feel too bad. I think it's just a really hard test. But um, no, I didn't pass that test because I'm smart. I, Passing because I studied uh, very hard. Well, a smart person studies. Uh, and so anyone who doesn't know, how would you explain a sommelier? Uh, just probably drinks too much. A person who drinks <laughs> too much and makes, knows too much about it. Um, I got my sommelier certification because um, nobody really knows what a certified specialist of wine is. Everybody knows the word sommelier. Uh, certified specialist of wine was harder to obtain than the level oh. one sommelier or the, oh, okay. the, the lower level sommelier. Um, now the level three sommelier is like super hard. There's only like 250 in the world. I think at the time that I became a certified specialist of wine, there were 600 of us in the U.S. But a sommelier or a certified specialist of wine is basically a, 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 
a person who aspires to be a master at beverage. And I don't think you can ever really obtain that unless you become a master sommelier. You you want to be all things to all people. There's there's a lot of detective work that goes into wine. Wine buying, uh, are the vintages good? Are the vintages bad? Is this fake wine? If the wine is tainted, how do we work with the winemakers to explain that it's tainted? People invest a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars into wine. And so a sommelier... Uh, you know, there's a big market. There's almost an equally as big market of people getting duped by wine as that there are people that are actually mm. getting what they paid for. And that's where a certified specialist of wine or sommelier comes into play. We can yeah. give you all the information about the wine, anything that you could ever need to know. And then we got to be able to blindly taste it and know exactly where in the world it came from, how long it's been in that bottle, if it needs to be aerated or not, to know if it's fake or not. So there's a lot of detective work you got to use all of your senses. That's incredible. It's so fun, right? To look at a wine and argue with it, like arguing with a glass. I know people make fun of it. They're like, Ooh, tastes like an oaky afterbirth. And it's fun to make fun of it because it does look stupid. <laughs> but a real sommelier that's really doing his work is right. doing it for a purpose. And it's doing it for the value of money that it's worth. So that when somebody's picking up, you know, a $2,000 bottle of wine, $2,100 bottle of wine, or a wine shop is buying cases we're talking hundreds of cases of wine to get them through for the year. They need to know, is this a good vintage? What's it worth? What can we pay for it? Is this even real? Like, did yeah. this even really come from Bordeaux, France? Or are we getting fucking gypped on this? You know, if, if each bottle is $2,000 and they buy a case, you know, you're talking $24,000. Don't you want to know if those 12 bottles are really what they, they say they are? And that's where a certified specialist of wine or a sommelier comes into play. Well, I'm, I could talk to about this all day. We'll do another podcast on this. I'm glad you're getting to do what you're passionate about. Eric, thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll uh, see you on Failure to Stop. I'll see you in the chats. All right. Thank you. <laughs> all right. I want to thank Eric for his time today and for your support of my podcast, Eric. I want to thank actually everybody on Failure to Stop for your support. I really appreciate it. As I've said, Failure to Stop has a whole suite of shows throughout the week. There's Night Shift with Eric and Andrea up late, Last Call with Eric and Josh from Dead Leg Media, Com Center with Drew Breezy and Jonathan Bates, and then, of course, Friday mornings is the flagship breakdown show with Eric Tanzi and Drew Breezy. I'll be sure to let you know when Eric's book is out. Again, it's Pig Latin, a serious but funny true story. I am not kidding when I say it's a page turner. It is a wild ride with humor and compassion and a very honest look at the profession. I want to add the book features illustrations by Jonathan Bates, whose work you can find on Instagram at difficult to look at pictures. I'll put that information in the episode notes as well as all my social media. Please don't forget to subscribe and follow. And if you are so moved, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you as always for listening.